I do get nightmares and I do still uh, have some recurring thoughts about what's happened and what's gone down. It's amazing how I can go about everyday living and there'll be something just so trivial and it will just rush certain things back. I try very hard to put it back and take it to the back of my brain. I try not to dwell on the, the, the things because it just becomes too much for me to handle. Hi guys, welcome to episode 13 of the True Crime Sisters podcast. I'm Harry and I'm here with my sister Bill as usual. As we like to do, we just wanted to say a big thank you to all of you guys, our listeners. To everyone who's left feedback and to everyone that has subscribed and listened, thank you. And of course, a huge thank you to our Patreon supporters. If you're interested in supporting the podcast, you can check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash Sisters. We'll be releasing our first ever Patreon-only episode on the 5th of September, and after that we'll be polling our current patrons to see what exclusive episode they'd like to hear next. You can also support us by following us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram, so come and check us out there. Um, With the formalities out of the way, here's Bill. Today we're talking about a case that is extremely disturbing and may even be a bit much for some listeners. We aren't the type of podcast that usually goes into the nitty-gritty, gory details, but this case was a tough one to read about, so just wanting to give you a heads up, it's pretty full on. Today we are talking about the bodies in the barrels case, otherwise known as the Snowtown Murders. This case is quite well known in Australia and has even been made into a movie, which is called Snowtown. So if this episode interests you, that movie may be worth checking out. The Snowtown Murders are a string of homicides that took place in South Australia between 1992 and 1999. These murders are particularly unusual because they were not perpetrated by just one deranged serial killer, but were planned and carried out by multiple people to varying degrees. It is quite rare to have serial killers work together at all, but it's very unique to have this number of people who are willing to murder in cold blood working together. As a podcast, we choose to keep our content fairly focused on the victim, The last thing we'd ever want to do is glorify the murderers. But to discuss this case, which is extremely interesting, we do have to talk about the killers more than we usually would. So I thought it was important to mention that before we get too deep into it, just in case you find that off-putting and want to tune out for this one. I think like you mentioned that a lot of Australians do know about this case. They may know it as, like you said, Body in the Barrels or Snowtown, but they don't quite know the intricate details and how sort of gross and disturbing this all is. Um, But yeah, I think a lot of people know parts of it, but it's actually really full on. I definitely didn't know the, like the finer details of the case. Like I feel like I've, I've watched a couple of documentaries here and there, but to actually do the research this week and learn about just how depraved these people were and the type of vulnerable people they chose as victims, it was actually, it really disturbed me in ways I wasn't expecting it to. Like it was actually quite a hard week as far as, you know, the podcast was concerned, I feel. But even um, the cycle of abuse, so although, like, obviously they were choosing those vulnerable victims, they themselves were at one point vulnerable victims. victims. So it's actually just a, it's really depressing. It's a very depressing case. That's the right word for it. John Bunting was born to parents Jan and Tom Bunting in 1966 in Inala, Brisbane. According to the Department of Communities, a department of the Queensland government, Inala is quite a low socioeconomic area. It is said to be run down and made up of quite a lot of working class Australians. It is also known to have a high crime and unemployment rate. 
Despite this, John Bunting reportedly didn't often go without the things he needed and wanted. Bunting was the type of child that was easily bored and moved quickly from hobby to hobby, never able to settle on one. He loved weapons from an early age and was known to take fireworks and empty them out and put gunpowder inside. He was also said to shoot targets often with slug guns. Another activity he enjoyed was reportedly digging out underground tunnels, even using bricks and wood to reinforce the walls against collapse. As a teenager, John Bunting became interested in Nazi ideology, strongly relating to some of the racist and homophobic beliefs that were key to Nazism. As he became more engrossed in his bigotry, his issues with gay people and pedophiles became an obsession and he struggled to differentiate between the two, despite the fact that they are completely and wholly different. He would often threaten to carry out violent attacks on people who he believed, rightly or wrongly, to be gay or a pedophile. Bunting did not have the easiest childhood. At eight years old, he became the victim of a pedophile. After a man was caught in the act with Bunting, he jumped on his motorbike to make a getaway and ended up crashing and dying as a result. Obviously, this entire ordeal would be extremely traumatic for any child to experience, but is no excuse for what Bunting went on to do. He didn't tell his parents what he had been through and therefore received no counselling in regards to his traumatic experience. It would seem that this experience was formative when it comes to who Bunting became as a teenager and an adult. Bunting also got a teenage girlfriend pregnant at 15 years of age, which may have been another fairly prominent event in his formative years. The young girl gave birth to a daughter, but Bunting rarely acknowledged the baby and didn't step up as a father and soon after lost all contact with the two. After high school, Bunting worked a series of entry-level jobs before eventually making the move down to Adelaide, where he got a job at an abattoir. Bunting openly spoke up about his prejudices and had no shame discussing his hatred of gay people and pedophiles. And I'm sorry that I'm even putting these two groups together in a sentence. Obviously, we are personally disgusted by Bunting's views. During this stage of his life, Bunting's disturbing traits came more to the forefront. One story that stuck out was when Bunting killed one of his friend's dogs and hung it from the shed in his house before wrapping it in plastic and throwing its body in the boot of his car. When his friend questioned where the dog was, Bunting told him that it had probably run away. Bunting didn't have a shortage of people in his life despite the type of person he was. He dated and then married an 18-year-old girl named Veronica, who was known to be a fragile girl with many medical and intellectual difficulties. This is a good example of how he gravitated towards vulnerable people he could take advantage of. His closest friend was a man named Robert Wagner, who had suffered similar struggles to him during his childhood, if not worse. When Robert Wagner was a young child, he was the victim of sexual abuse. By the age of seven, it is reported that he was suicidal. He wouldn't speak to a psychologist or counsellor about his abuse, but he did begin to act out. He started to struggle with school and would skip class often. As a young adolescent, he would run away from home and be missing for days, worrying his mother. At 13 years of age, Robert began spending time with an openly gay man named Barry Lane. Lane was also a pedophile who had been arrested in 1980 for indecently assaulting two boys under the age of 12. Barry Lane would buy gifts and groom Robert to try and build up his trust. Later that year, Barry Lane and Robert disappeared together, most likely so they could continue their relationship without Robert's mother being able to intervene. Once Robert Wagner was 18, the pair moved back to the neighbourhood as there was nothing his mother could do once he was at that age of consent. Initially when Bunting first met Robert Wagner and Barry Lane, he hated the gay couple. 
but as he got to know them, he grew to like Wagner. This didn't change the way he felt about gay people in general, though. Bunting was sure that Robert Wagner was actually not gay, but had just been groomed and held hostage by Lane, which was true to some extent. Well, it seems true because he was very young. He was gone for about four years. Yeah, and so. quite, if you think about what it's like to be a 13-year-old, yeah. to be then groomed at that age is just, that's crazy. And that's a five-year period of yeah. having that happen, so... While he hated Barry Lane, he was able to use the pedophile to gather information about other pedophiles operating in the area. Another of Bunting's friends was named Mark Hayden. Hayden was not a particularly intelligent man and had also come from a fairly rough childhood. His older brother had passed away at a young age in a car accident and his mother had mental difficulties that certainly would have had an impact on his childhood. He was another misfit that fitted perfectly into John Bunting's group. The first person to fall victim to this group was a young man named Clinton Trezise. Clinton, like many people in the disadvantaged northern suburbs of Adelaide, had had a rough upbringing, moving from foster home to foster home. Despite this, he was finally finding his footing and was described as carefree, independent and likeable. But along with these positive qualities, Clinton was also vulnerable, which made him susceptible to predators. He ended up meeting Barry Lane and Robert Wagner and befriended the couple. It's so sad because as, as an openly gay teenager, he probably found comfort in spending time with a gay couple. He was invited over to John Bunting's house to hang out. Clinton was last seen alive in August 1992. According to reports, while Clinton was at Bunting's house, he was ambushed by the older man and brutally beaten to death. The motive behind this murder was the same as all to come, simply because Bunting hated people with a different sexuality to his own. Bunting enlisted Barry Lane and Robert Wagner and the three men concealed Clinton's body and buried him, leaving him alone in a shallow grave. According to Clinton's sister, she attempted to report him missing to police, but no official missing persons report was recorded until three years after his disappearance. His disappearance, it would seem, went largely unnoticed and it was not unusual in those more disadvantaged areas of Adelaide for people to come and go unnoticed. Another friend in the group of misfits was Elizabeth Harvey, who had recently separated from her husband. Elizabeth and her two sons ended up moving in with Bunting, and the two carried on an affair despite Bunting being in a relationship with Veronica. Elizabeth's sons had both been the victims of sexual molestation perpetrated by her younger son, Jamie's biological father. As a result of this early sexualization, her older son, Troy, went on to molest the younger Jamie. Bunting saw himself as a bit of a mentor to the teenage Jamie, and as a vulnerable young man, Jamie was probably just happy to have a male figure in his life. Unfortunately, Bunting was not the type of role model any parent would want around their child. Reportedly, Jamie viewed Bunting as an articulate and intelligent man. They would spend time together, and I'm sure Bunting's ranting and raving about his hatred of pedophiles and gay people began to rub off on the younger man. In a nearby caravan park, an intellectually disabled man named Ray Davies moved to the area. At some stage, a woman named Susan Allen, who was also known to John Bunting, confronted him and accused him of molesting her grandchildren. I have read different accounts of whom Susan Allen was. Most sources said she was a neighbour of Ray Davies, and another said they were lovers, but either way, he was accused of molesting her grandchildren. She also told Bunting of her suspicions, although Ray Davies denied any involvement in offences against children. Ray Davies did have a chequered past. He had a number of convictions to his name, some of which were quite revolting if they're true. 
Bunting, Lane and Wagner learnt of the accusations against Ray Davies and they were disgusted at the idea that he could potentially be a pedophile. Within days of Suzanne Allen approaching Bunting about the accusation that Davies had abused her grandchildren, he disappeared. Bunting and Wagner abducted Davies and took him first to the bushland where they abused him before bringing him to Bunting's house where he was strangled with a pair of car jumper leads. Elizabeth Harvey also participated in this murder. Following the murder of Ray Davies, his body was buried in the backyard of the house, which was located on Waterloo Corner Road in Adelaide's northern suburbs. Suzanne Allen had actually fallen in love with John Bunting at this time, and she showed her affections for him by sending him love letters and constantly trying to woo him. They were in a brief sexual relationship at the same time that he was married to Veronica and in another sexual relationship with Elizabeth Harvey. Eventually, Bunting got sick of her affections and she disappeared. Unlike the two men that were killed before her, Susan Allen's disappearance did not go unnoticed. Her brother went around to her house in 1996 after she disappeared and noticed that it was very messy and some of her furniture was missing. This was extremely odd, as Susan was well known to keep her home very neat and tidy. After he reported her missing to the police, he noticed that her car disappeared from the driveway. When Bunting and Wagner were asked about where Suzanne was, they told people that Suzanne had left because she had owed people money. In reality, they were collecting her welfare benefits for themselves. When Bunting was approached by the police about Suzanne's disappearance, reportedly he told them she had run off with a young lover named Andy. In reality, she had been dismembered, wrapped in rubbish bags and buried in the yard of the Waterloo Corner Road home. Later, they would claim that they had found her dead from a heart attack and had just disposed of her body so they could claim her welfare payment. In 1996, Bunting moved with Elizabeth Harvey and her two sons, Troy and Jamie, to Murray Bridge. We are making the assumption at this point that his relationship with Veronica was over. At the new house, John Bunting created something he called the Wall of Spiders, which was a mind map with the names and personal details of people who he had rightly or wrongly decided were pedophiles, including Barry Lane. Bunting would sometimes pick a random name off his wall of spiders and begin prank calling and harassing them. He also kept files which contained information about his targets, including their hobbies, interests and devious pastimes. An example of this is inside the file of Barry Lane. His interests were listed as hanging around public toilets waiting for children, flaunting his homosexual lifestyle and being a known toucher of underage children. One night, Bunting and Jamie were watching an episode of Australia's Most Wanted when a story came up about the missing man, Clinton. Jamie noticed that Bunting looked really happy and excited. He told Jamie that the murder was his handiwork. Eventually, Wagner began to distance himself from Barry Lane and stopped talking about their relationship. He denied that he was gay and began a relationship with a woman who had three children moving in with her. One of Wagner's new neighbours was an openly gay man named Michael Gardner. Like many of the people from the area, he had also had a difficult childhood. He had been rejected by his stepfather due to his sexuality. He was also abused by a friend of his family at age 14. At age 19, Michael was beginning to find his feet and proudly flaunted his unique style. He was close friends with his landlady, who also knew Robert Wagner's girlfriend, and that's how the two were introduced. So just in relation to Michael Gardner, some of the stuff I was reading, he was actually sort of in a transition to becoming a woman as well. So nothing was formal. He couldn't afford the actual transition, but he did dress as a woman and he actually sometimes went by the name Michelle. So just out of respect, um, I just thought I'd mention that he also may come up as Michelle 
Um, we'll call him Michael, but yeah, because we, we are we, unsure. Everything we read said Michael Gardner, but we did want to mention it just out of respect to potentially what his wishes would be had he still been alive. Yeah, which we're not sure of, but I just yeah. wanted to mention that it's Michelle as well. One day, Michael Gardner was at Wagner and his girlfriend's house and was running around the yard with one of the children. As a part of the game, Michael went to grab the child and accidentally put his hand around the child's mouth. This was seen to be a purposeful and malevolent act. Reportedly, this was something that Wagner had experienced during his molestation as a child, so this was likely triggering for him. One day, while his landlady was away, Michael Gardner was abducted by Bunting and Wagner. The pair beat and tortured Michael, eventually strangling him with a length of rope. Before they kidnapped him, they forced him to make a phone call to a family friend to try and deflect suspicion about his disappearance. The friend noticed that Michael sounded anxious in the call and heard a voice in the background telling him to hurry up. After his landlady returned home, she noticed that some of her property was missing and both her and Michael's houses were trashed. Bunting and Wagner had tried to make it look like Michael had left and stolen some of her things on the way out. At some point, an individual impersonating Michael called her and apologised for stealing her stuff, but stated that he needed his wallet and urged her not to involve the police. Since his relationship with Robert Wagner had ended, Barry Lane had groomed and begun a relationship with another young man, Thomas Trevelyan. Thomas, like the other players in this case, was not a stable character. He was plagued with mental health issues. Seeing Barry Lane grooming another young man may have triggered Bunting and Wagner to strike again. This time their target was their former accomplice, Barry Lane. Wagner and Bunting set out to befriend Thomas, bringing him into their plans. On the 17th of October, 1997, they convinced Thomas to help them as they abducted Barry Lane. They stole his bank cards and demanded his PIN numbers so they could access his money. They then forced him to phone his mother and abuse her, as well as tell her he was moving to Queensland. So when we say they forced him, we just didn't want to go into, like we mentioned earlier, all those gory details. Like, it's brutal. So yeah. when we say they forced him, we mean they tortured him. Yeah. Like, it's disgusting. Like, the way we've worded it may not sound horrible, but that's only because we don't feel like we need to really go into those details. There's plenty of places you can find those details if you are interested. It's sort of out of respect to the, to the, the victims. victims as well. Like, the dignity of the victims were totally torn apart Absolutely. in these torturous acts. So. Every single um, person, we're going to sort of keep it like a little bit. We're keeping it brief. Mm. And there's a lot of names. So, I mean, it's a very, it's a confusing case. There's a lot of names. It's like name after name. So I I hope you can keep up. Yeah, it's a little little confusing. Yeah. Yeah. Barry's mother noticed that the phone call was extremely strange. And we're just referring to the phone call Barry was forced to make now, just because we've just had a little chat. I just wanted to remind you. And she thought that maybe Lane was intoxicated. Barry sounded very angry and agitated and his mother could hear Thomas Trevelyan in the background. The phone call unsettled her and she was distraught. The three men then beat and tortured Barry Lane, doing things that are far too revolting for us to say. They then killed him and wrapped his body up in a roll of carpet. It didn't take long for people to notice that Barry Lane was gone But because the trio had recorded his voice saying he was moving to Queensland, the police did nothing. Following the murder, Thomas moved in with Robert Wagner and his family. Participating in the murder of Barry Lane did not sit well with Thomas. Participating in the murder of Barry Lane did not sit well with Thomas the way it did with Bunting and Wagner and he slowly began to lose the plot. His mental health worsened and he got increasingly paranoid. 
Wagner and Bunting began to grow concerned about Thomas Trevelyan's behaviour. They were worried that he was going to expose them and tell people about the murder. As Trevelyan's erratic behaviour escalated, he became a liability for the pair and they decided that he had to go. On the 5th of November, a truck driver was driving his route when he noticed a man hanging from a tree just outside of Adelaide Hills. It was Thomas Trevelyan. Police investigated and decided that it was a suicide. As we now know, it wasn't. There was a pattern developing in Bunting and Wagner's social group. They would bring in and gain the trust of people who were vulnerable and make them their accomplices. And then when they were no longer needed, Bunting and Wagner would kill and dispose of them. The murders were getting closer together as the cooling off period the pair needed shortened. It is thought that the pair were driven by a shared hatred of pedophiles and an inability to distinguish between gay people and pedophiles. This was likely because they were both abused as young boys. All the while, Bunting and Wagner were accessing the payments that were made into the victim's bank accounts. As well as financial gain, the pair appeared to enjoy the power and the thrill of taking the lives of those around them. Because their confidence grew as they went undetected, these two became an unstoppable and extremely dangerous pair. During the time the murders were taking place, Jamie Vlasakis had become a drug addict. He was close friends with another drug addict, Gavin Porter, who, like the rest of them, had a rough start to life that had never got any better. His mother had died of cancer in 1991 and he was raised mostly by his grandmother. Both Jamie and Gavin were on the methadone program to treat their heroin addiction, which is where they had met. Bunting allowed Jamie and Gavin to live with him, but he couldn't stand their drug-taking lifestyle and he developed a strong hatred of drug addicts. He would often refer to Jamie and Gavin as a waste. Gavin Porter was last seen by his doctor. Unfortunately, the man, who had never caught a break in his life, was murdered by Bunting and Wagner. Bunting grew angry after accidentally pricking himself on one of Porter's used needles and that was enough to spark a murderous rage. One night, John took Jamie to the garage of the Murray Bridge home where there was a large bunch of cushions stacked up against the wall. Bunting removed the cushions one by one and revealed that underneath was the body of Gavin Porter, Jamie's drug addict friend. Jamie noticed bruising around Gavin's neck. Jamie was extremely disturbed and was reportedly sick at the sight. Days later, John Bunting brought a 44-gallon plastic barrel to the house and convinced Jamie to help him move it to the shed. He then put Gavin's body into the barrel and secured the lid shut. The barrel was moved next to another identical barrel. Bunting lifted the lid of the other barrel and reportedly turned to Jamie and said, they're rotting nicely. Little did Jamie know that contained in the other 44-gallon barrel were the bodies of Barry Lane and Michael Gardner. From this point onwards, a terrified Jamie was forced to participate in the crimes. While he was by no means an innocent man, Jamie was far too scared for his own life to not do what Bunting wanted. He was now aware of what Bunting was capable of. The next victim was chosen to pay tribute to their newest accomplice. Jamie's older half-brother, Troy Yule, who had molested him when they were growing up, was the next victim. One night while Troy slept, Bunting, Wagner and Jamie Flasakis crept into his room and began their attack by beating him with bats and clubs. Jamie declares this was as far as he thought the incident was go would go, but he was wrong. Troy was dragged into the bathroom and Bunting demanded that he call him Lord Sir and call Wagner God. Reportedly, Bunting seemed like he was on a high as the beating continued. Apparently, Jamie struggled to watch the beating and tried to leave, but Bunting demanded that he stay and participate. 
Bunting brought out his tape recorder and a pre-written script forcing Troy to read the lines aloud. Troy did this. The lines stated that he was running away and told his mum to leave him alone. Once they had completed the recording, Troy was forced to apologise to Jamie for the abuse he had suffered at Troy's hands. They then used a length of rope as a garrote and slowly strangled the life out of Troy. After he passed away, they wrapped his body in garbage bags and transported it to the garage. When Jamie and Troy's mother, Elizabeth Harvey, asked where Troy was, she was lied to. And just to remind you, because I feel like these names are just like yeah, coming out of nowhere. Yeah. Elizabeth Harvey was um, one of John Bunting's lovers. And obviously she is also the mother of Jamie Vosakis and Troy Yule, who's just been murdered. The next day, another plastic barrel was bought to store Troy's body. Jamie did not enjoy the murder the way that the other two did, but he felt like he had no choice to pre- but to pretend he was a part of the group. He feared for his own life. And also, I don't know if it's worth pointing out or not, but when we say they enjoyed the murder, like they were literally like laughing. They, were in they it. just thought it was the best thing. They're actually really enjoying it. Like it's yeah. disgusting. Soon after, Mark Hayden moved back to the area and started spending time with the group again. He was joined by his wife and two daughters, along with his sister-in-law, Jodie Elliott. Bunting began an affair with Jodie. When he was spending time with her, he would tell his girlfriend Elizabeth he had taken up a second job. The group moved the barrels to Mark's place, hoping to avoid detection. It wasn't long before the group chose their next victim. Fred Brooks was Jodie Elliott's son. He was a young man who, in a familiar tune, had grown up with a difficult life, but he showed great promise for the future. His parents had actually met in the welfare line, but he was determined to make something of himself. Bunting and Jodie treated him poorly after Fred rejected Bunting as a father figure. On the 17th of September 1998, Fred was supposed to meet up with some friends following a career expo. However, he never showed up. Jodie began to worry about her son when he didn't return home the next day. She reported him missing to the police. Little did Jodie know that the day before, Wagner and Bunting had beaten, tortured and killed her son. They also forced him to speak into their tape recorder, stating that he had run off with a girl he had met and would be back after Christmas. The torture Fred endured was revolting and not something we will go into, but the cause of his death was asphyxiation. Like the others, his body was placed into a plastic barrel. To throw Fred's mother, Jodie Elliott, off their tracks, Bunting told her that he had seen Fred at a service station with a woman not long before the disappearance. He lied and said that Fred was high on speed and buying petrol. This, coupled with the tape recording message, meant that the police didn't take the disappearance seriously and remove Fred's name from the missing persons list. But the murders didn't stop there. The men had a taste for death that wasn't going to stop until they were caught. The next victim wasn't as close to the group as some of the others. Gary O'Dwyer was a stranger who was just unlucky enough to be spotted by Bunting and Vlasakis while they were out and about in their car. Bunting reportedly believed that he was gay and Vlasakis was too scared of Bunting to do anything to stop the events that followed from unfolding. Gary lived nearby to Vosakis, who was encouraged by Bunting to get close enough so they could investigate him. Gary was another man with a troubled childhood. He had been adopted into a family that already took care of a significant amount of foster children. He was described as a lost soul and known to be a bit of a loner. On Christmas 1994, Gary was struck by a car, leaving him with irreparable injuries. He lived on disability and had turned to drugs and alcohol to self-medicate. Like the other victims, he was an easy target due to his vulnerability. 
One day, when Bunting, Wagner and Vlasakis were out cruising the streets, they spotted Gary. Bunting urged Vlasakis to invite Gary to hang out. Gary and Vlasakis made plans to hang out at Gary's house later that day, and they were joined by Bunting and Wagner. The four men had a few drinks together before the attack on Gary began. Gary had epilepsy, which was triggered by the attack. He begged the men to let him live, but they showed no sympathy. Like the victims before him, he was questioned about his bank details and then beaten and tortured until he passed away. The following day, Bunting and Vlasakis returned to the house to check whether there was anything of value they could steal. Gary's body was stored, along with the others, in a plastic barrel at Mark Hayden's house. Bunting began to grow paranoid that Mark Hayden's wife, Elizabeth Hayden, might know too much about the murders and bodies that were being stored in the garage. Reportedly, she was aware of at least Clinton's murder. When Mark wasn't around, Bunting would comment to the other men that Elizabeth was dirty and disgusting. Sometime between the 20th and the 26th of November, while Mark was out, Elizabeth Hayden became the next victim. Bunting and Wagner overpowered Elizabeth, and like the others, she was tortured horribly. She was then asphyxiated with a sock. Bunting told Mark that Elizabeth had been trying to crack onto him and had become upset when she was rejected. He said that she had then run off with a boyfriend. At some stage, Mark was made aware of Elizabeth's death and continued to cover for his friends, even lying to Elizabeth's brother about where she was, telling him not to report her disappearance to police, which he ignored. That's disgusting. So gross. He stuck up for his mates who murdered his wife. Yeah. That's disgusting. It's just a different world from the sounds of things. Like you can't, it's, you can't even comprehend this kind of thing happening. Yeah, it's just a lot of lost souls, yeah. I reckon. It was the disappearance of Elizabeth Hayden that led to the investigation picking up speed. This time, there was some urgency to the investigation. The detectives were particularly shocked that Mark Hayden had not been the one to report his own wife missing. He, Bunting and Wagner were all questioned separately just days after the disappearance and all told the same story, but the interviewing officer, Greg Stone, thought there was more to the story. One of Hayden's neighbours reported that he had seen an old Toyota four-wheel drive parked outside the house just after the murders. She saw a man loading the car with garbage bags from floor to roof and understandably thought it looked suspicious. Police searched the Hayden household and discovered that Elizabeth's purse was still there. They didn't believe that if she'd run off with a lover that she would have left her purse there with all her bank cards in it. They also found her wedding ring in the house and some soiled clothing hidden in the garage. A forensic team went over the house with a fine-tooth comb and discovered some blood in the laundry. A sample was taken. Although police could smell a foul odour on the property emanating from a pit in the garage, they couldn't see anything in there. The body barrels had been moved days before. The smell remained. The barrels had been transported to a friend's farm property where they were told they contained kangaroo carcasses. The friends later reported they couldn't get within 20 feet without being completely overpowered by the strong smell. Once Bunting's friends could no longer stand the smell of the barrels, he rented out an old bank in the small suburb of Snowtown. Snowtown is located 145 kilometres north of the Adelaide CBD and is a small, nondescript town with a small population that was 405 in the 2006 census. The bank had been empty for some time and contained a vault which Bunting thought would be a perfect storage spot for the barrels containing his victims. Meanwhile, police were beginning to link the murders, and the breakthrough came when Wagner was caught on CCTV footage withdrawing money from Barry Lane's bank account. 
Police were also able to draw links between Wagner and three of the victims, Lane, Trezais and Hayden. At this point, Robert Wagner became a person of interest in the investigation and surveillance was put on him. In January 1999, the police put phone taps on Bunting and Wagner. Bunting began to feel the heat when he was re-interviewed, even accusing the police of harassment. After around three months, Bunting suspected the heat was off. It was time for another victim. David Johnson was the stepbrother of Jamie and had been told Jamie was taking him to check out a cheap computer. Police overheard a conversation between the men saying that Vlasakis was in his car with David Johnson. Vlasakis and David arrived at the bank and went inside. Despite police hearing the phone calls between the men, they didn't intervene. Maybe they weren't aware of exactly what was happening inside the bank. Before David could get far into the bank, he was grabbed by Bunting and Wagner and was subjected to torture and beatings. The men got David's bank details and forced him to record messages for his family to throw the police off his scent. The men spread plastic sheeting across the bank floor. Bunting then ordered Vlasakis to drive down to the local petrol station to try out David's bank card and see if the pin he had given worked. The card was declined. By the time police intercepted Jamie's call back to Bunting, David Johnson had passed away. But he hadn't gone down without a fight and had actually managed to break a couple of Bunting's ribs in the fight. Reportedly, Vlasakis didn't want to participate in the dismemberment of David's body, but was forced to by Bunting. The men were interrupted in the middle of the dismemberment by one of their friends, Simon Jones, who showed up uninvited. Now, I also believe that Simon Jones was one half of that couple where the body barrels were actually stored in between um, the time that they were at Mark Hayden's house and the bank. Reportedly, once they'd sent Simon on his way, the men actually cannibalised David's body, which is just so disgusting. Well, apparently Jamie didn't. That was just well, Wagner and yeah, Bunting. They know he, Jamie um, tried to try it and he vomited Oh, okay. I actually read that he didn't. Oh, okay, there you go. Like yep. he was, I think with Jamie, he really felt a pressure to be kind of one of the boys. He was obviously scared if he wasn't one of the boys, he was going to be killed. Yeah, and he was and a he young man who faced a lot of abuse yeah, in his life as absolutely. well. absolutely. So it's one of those situations, like this whole case is one of those situations where like you can't condone the behaviours that these men have, have participated in, but especially with Jamie, like I have to admit I did feel some sympathy for Jamie during my research. Mm. I actually in a way like at different times felt sympathy for pretty much every single person in this case because even Wagner and Bunting were victims their whole life as mm. well. Like obviously they turned to the people they turned into and I do not condone that and I think it's disgusting but their upbringings were very disturbing as well I I, I don't think I can feel sympathy mm, for bunting yeah probably not Wagner either to be honest I I can't really feel sympathy for them just because the extreme levels it went to I mean if it hadn't escalated to the level that it did I might feel some sympathy for them but just the level to which it escalated I feel like any normal person who had been victimized in their life it, it wouldn't go there. Yeah, that's Do you a know good what point. I mean? That's just me. But with Jamie, everything I read said that he made it fairly clear that he didn't actually want to participate in it. He was horrified by the whole thing. It seems like he repeatedly threw up every time he was around the bodies, but he felt like his life was at stake if he didn't participate. Obviously yeah. not condoning anything he did. It's disgusting. And he deserves to, you know, to pay for the crimes that he did but yeah it's just something to think about it's definitely a cycle of abuse that's happening 
here. Yeah, absolutely. And I yeah. guess like sympathy is the wrong word. I didn't, I don't actually, I couldn't care less about them now because yeah. of what they've done. But they did come from quite traumatic childhoods. Yeah. And obviously, Reading about their childhoods, it does yeah. kind of, you go, you go, oh, it's not the best start no. to life at all. But obviously so many people come from those types of childhoods and do nothing like this. Well, so. half the victims came from those yeah. type of childhoods Absolutely. and, you know, they weren't doing anything wrong. Well, They were just living their lives. Well, no, I'm saying pedophiles. some of them. Some of them were pedophiles, but I'm saying aside from the pedophiles, the young gay men that were just living their lives, Absolutely, who lost yeah. their lives just for being yeah, that's, young gay that's men. That's fucked up. That's, yeah. it's fucked, yeah. So the men then went and started rumours about David that he'd gotten a girl pregnant and fled the area to try and throw off his family members. So the police investigation led it led the police to Simon Jones's house where um, they actually found the four-wheel drive that had been witnessed after um, Elizabeth Hayden's murder. They were told about the barrels at the old bank and given the names of Bunting and Wagner. So when the police got to the bank, because Simon didn't realise there was... Simon still thinks it's kangaroo carcasses, so yeah. he's not concerned. So he actually really willingly went into the bank and willingly opened the vault, just thinking nothing of it. And obviously, once the police opened the vault, the smell was horrific. And that's when they sort of they saw the plastic sheeting and obviously the barrels. It was the 20th of May when the victims of these horrible murders were discovered by police. Once the murders were announced to the public, media swarmed the small rural town of Snowtown. The barrels were removed and taken to Adelaide to be analysed so the victims could be identified. It was discovered that the acid used by the murderers, hydrochloric acid, actually aided in preserving the bodies. Obviously, the killers were not intelligent enough to do their homework. It's sulfuric acid that would have begun the process of dissolving the victims' bodies. Once the bodies were discovered, the police were able to quickly move in on the killers they divided into a search group and an arrest group. The first to be arrested was Bunting, along with his partner, Elizabeth Harvey. Initially, Bunting was charged with one count of murder. Elizabeth was eventually released without charge. The next to be arrested was Wagner and then Hayden, who were also both charged with one count of murder each. A couple of days after the initial round of arrests, Jamie Vlasakis was interviewed. He told police everything about the arrested men and hoped that he would be granted immunity for his cooperation. He led police to Bunting's old address at Waterloo Corner Road, where the bodies of Ray Davies and Suzanne Allen were still buried. Vlasakis's mother, Elizabeth Harvey, passed away from cancer before the court proceedings went ahead, and at that point, Vlasakis confessed fully to his participation in the murders. According to reports, Vlasakis was taunted by the other three men charged with the murders and was scared for his life. Eventually, he was separated from them and put under guard to protect him from retribution. Vlasakis became the crown star witness in the cases against the other three. The trial was heard in the Supreme Court. By this time, Wagner had pled guilty, but Hayden and Bunting were still denying their involvement. During the trial, the details of the murders were so gruesome and horrible that three of the jurors had to withdraw from their duty. In the end, John was charged with all 11 murders. Wagner was charged with 10 and Mark Hayden too. The trial went for 11 months and all four men were found guilty. During sentencing, the judge made it clear that he was disgusted by the men, calling them cowards and pointing out their lack of remorse. Bunting and Wagner were both sentenced to life in prison with no parole date set. Jamie Vlasakis was sentenced to life in prison with possible parole after 26 years and Mark Hayden was sentenced to 25 years with parole possible after 18 years. To this day, the families and friends of the victims suffer as they remember the horror their loved ones faced in their last hours and moments. It is completely devastating. 
Most of the victims were so vulnerable and undeserving of that fate, and to be killed so violently just adds insult to injury. Our thoughts go out to the families of the victims that are still suffering to this day. So obviously, yeah, it's a disturbing case, very hard to follow, lots of people. There's definitely lots of um, documentaries and stuff out there as well, so if people are more interested... Or sometimes it's sort of confusing when you're hearing people talk, but to actually watch a documentary, you get your head around it a little bit more. It's definitely one of those cases that most Australians will know about. It's a very disturbing case. And I feel like the way it's presented in each documentary or each podcast is presented a little bit differently, so you kind of learn a little bit more from each person's sort of interpretation of the crimes and how they kind of eventuated. So, yeah, it's been a hard one to cover, so... It's actually a pretty good movie, though, Snowtown. If you are, it, it's not super, well, it is a little bit factual, but it's actually just, if you're into those kind of art housey, creepy, especially, I love Australian film. So if you're interested in those sort of movies, I do recommend checking out Snowtown. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the True Crime Sisters podcast. This case was a bit of a difficult one for us and was extremely hard to research and put together, and especially hard to word in a way that remained respectful to those who suffered greatly. We hope you enjoyed learning about the Snowtown serial murder case and that you'll join us next week for episode 14 of the podcast. Until then, please stay safe.